This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 199. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Last week, we just announced the initial presenting companies for the SNN Network Canada Virtual Event, which is happening December 7th through 9, 2021. Please go to canada.snn.network to see the full list of issuers that will be joining us. Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and myself on behalf of SNN Network are teaming up again to highlight our neighbors to the North Canada. In the last five to 10 years, small micro and nano cap investors have been finding value accretive opportunities on the TSX, TSX Ventures, CSE, and NEO. So we wanted to have an event to highlight everything available there. So you can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and click the register button. We look forward to seeing you there. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Luis Sanchez, investor and founder of LVS Advisory. I was introduced to him by Ben Claremont, host of the Compounders podcast. Thank you, Ben. This is the first time I met with Luis and we chatted about a whole host of topics. His defensive portfolio strategy focused on merger arbitrages, uh, growth portfolio philosophy, Naked Wines thesis, value traps, and more. I really enjoyed meeting Luis and learning more about his investing approach. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 199 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Luis Sanchez. back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Luis Sanchez. He's the investor founder at LVS Advisory. Uh, I was introduced to Luis uh, via Ben Claremont. Shout out to Ben, the host of The Compounders, The Anatomy of the Multibagger podcast. I invite you all to go check out the weekly wrap-up that we just put out there. But the task at hand today is getting to know Luis even better uh, as a person, as an investor. Luis, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Hey, Bobby. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward to doing the pod. It's great to have you on. And uh, for those who are uh, listening to the audio version and not watching this on YouTube, uh, Luis happens to be an expert botanist. Uh, based on his background, I need to get some tips on how I can take care of my plants a little bit better. Uh, I, I mean, my, my money tree is doing okay here, but it, I, I mean, I'm just, rare, rare I, I don't plants, have a green thumb. Rare plants have been an incredibly high-performing investment asset class for me. 
they pay for the, they pay for themselves. You you cut the you cut the leaves and you have uh, you have some natural compounded growth right there. Fair enough. I mean, look, it's not artwork anymore. <laughs> NFTs, you know, we're talking rare plants. Like this is going to be a whole new asset class that everybody is going to overlook. Clearly, yeah. And and I'm 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 only slightly joking about that. You could go Google the rare plant boom, and it's actually been another really interesting uh, asset speculation bubble. <laughs> Wait a second. So so what's the most popular rare plant right now? Oh, uh, well, it changes. It actually changes by the season. So I think the way the rare plant ecosystem works is uh, people will breed new, um, like new, what do you call them? Like crossbreeding different strains like of plants and like, pheno, up, like phenotypes pigments. or something. Like, uh, I, I can't remember the technical, the technical terms, but then what will happen <laughs> is like, a plant will basically go viral on Instagram because someone created like a, a, a leaf with like a, an interesting hue. And then people will start buying it like crazy and bid up the price of that plant. They'll buy it and then they'll resell it on like Facebook groups or on uh, eBay or, you know, I think there's some plant specific platforms. And then what happens is once a plant gets really popular and big, then um, like the Home Depots and Lowe's of the world mass produce them. And then the uh, the prices plummet. <laughs> but every every season, there's like a couple of like types of plants or breeds of plants that um, get really hot, and people will pay thousands of dollars just for like little cuttings um, <clears throat> of like monsteras and hoyas and all sorts of interesting rare plants. Dude, I thought I heard it all, but. Wow. Here, I almost like, I know we have a lot more to get into today, but I almost want to stay on this for a second because the I've never ha- ever had even in like in passing conversation about the rare. I think, and I know I think my, you're going to have to do the next podcast interview with my wife because she's the, the master uh, horticulturist. Listen, my dad has a green thumb. He lo- I think right now he is like frothing at the bit hearing that we're talking about rare plants on planet microcap right now. And it's like taking notes as we speak as to where he can find all the information he can on some of these rare plants. So, um, oh man. All right. We'll, we'll come back to rare, you know, we'll, we'll come back to rare plants at the very end. Dad, I'm sorry. Don't worry. We'll get into it later. Um, so, you know, again, this is our first time actually meeting together, even though we were introduced from Ben, you know, so to, to start off, I'd, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear about where your passion for investing began and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So um, honestly, uh, a little bit later than some some other folks, uh, I learned about investing in college. Um, I really had I really didn't I didn't even know what a stock was probably before college. I I initially wanted to go into um, some kind of international trade or international business, and I was a, a a dual Chinese language major and business major. And um, in like one of these intro to uh, finance classes, we did uh, a stock market, like in-class stock market game. And I'm a fairly competitive person. So I wanted to win the game. And I started learning about, it basically forced me to learn about different, how how the stock market worked and like try to figure out what stocks would outperform. And I was hooked. Um, After that, I I pursued a couple of internships. I had the opportunity to intern with uh, my university's college endowment where um, I was able to listen in on um, that. I went to Florida State University, 
and flowed estates endowments invested in some world-class hedge funds and private equity funds. And I interned basically right after the financial crisis. And I was able to listen in on all of like the quarterly calls and hear like these hedge fund managers and like private equity fund managers talk about how they were navigating the post-crisis uh, situation. And it was super fascinating. And um, it really inspired me to, I really wanted to learn a lot more about what they were talking about. And it really inspired me to like pursue that, pursue that career. You know, I had that initial hook from the, from the intro to finance class, but once I had that internship, I, I knew I was, uh, I knew I wanted to do that as, as a career. And I did a few other internships in, in asset management, but after, after college, I decided to go into um, investment banking. I spent the first five years of my career in various like sell side roles. Um, the last role I was in was uh, at, uh, at Credit Suisse's M&A team, where I was actually on the hostel M&A desk. And it was a really interesting situation. It was a really interesting position because we were working on like the, the most, uh, ha the hairiest deals, right? We were um, on the other side of the table with like really well-known activist investors. We were helping companies pursue hostile takeovers. So um, it, was a, it was a unique situation because I was able to like learn about a lot of the non-quantitative aspects of uh, special situations. So like the legal and structural de corporate defenses, um, what goes into like a shareholder vote, um, what the role of like ISS or Glass-Lewis is and um, different things about the regulatory process. And it was, it was a really interesting experience and it was the initial seed that led me to um, start LVS a few years later, but, and I'll get back to why that's important, but um, right after Credit Suisse, I joined a, um, a startup quantitative firm where um, I, I joined basically this, this quantitative firm that was pre-launch and I was like a junior founding partner. Um, and we, we pursued a quantum mental strategy, which was trying to take the best of like fundamental quantitative value investing, but have like a human overlay. And I was essentially like the human overlay and uh, my my partner was uh, was the quant who was uh, administering and programming the the algorithms that we were using to to basically pick the stocks. Um, it was a really interesting it was a really interesting process. Uh, you know, joining joining a firm pre launch, staying on post launch, helping to raise money, helping to like design different elements of not just like the portfolio and stock stock selection process, but also just like how to run the business and how to like interface with all the different parties involved. Um, a few years into that, I, I, I got this idea to start a new um, investment strategy that was actually more of, a, of a, a qualitative strategy. It wasn't a strategy that made a lot of sense to, to, to administer quantitatively. Um, and basically the idea was um, to, to create an, a merger arbitrage strategy. And so that, that's like the connection with like Credit Suisse and like my experience in M&A is ever since, ever, since I, ever since I worked in M&A, I always continue to follow um, different M&A situations. And in my personal portfolio, I started investing in different deals that I thought were interesting that had attractive uh, risk arbitrage spreads. And in 2018, 
I had a pretty interesting realization because 2018 was a year where at the start of the year, we had the volatility uh, uh, crash, which led to a correction in the stock market. And then towards the end of 2018, the Fed started raising rates and the market corrected 20%. And when I looked at how my like merger arbitrage portfolio was doing, I was putting up a double digit return with almost no volatility and no correlation to those crash events. And um, I thought there might be something there. Um, I thought it was actually a pretty compelling, um, it could be a pretty compelling investment strategy to, to pursue. And, um, you know, I, I sep- after I separated from uh, the quantitative firm, I, I spent a few months, um, you know, putting together what I thought the portfolio could look like and learning a little bit more about merger arbitrage. Um, in early 2019, I approached um, some invest- some initial investors and I launched basically LVS Advisory with the single strategy of running this merger arbitrage portfolio. And the idea behind it, or at least the way that I describe it to, to folks is, you know, we, we focus on very, um, we focus on the less risky merger arbitrage spread. So we avoid the situations that are like truly the hairiest. So the ones where there's like a, a coin flip chance of getting regulatory approval or getting shareholder vote approval. We focus in on like um, the ones that are highly likely to, to close, but still have an attractive uh, premium. And I've been running that strategy for three years and you know, we've effectively been able to, to put up a double digit net return with pr- fairly low um, volatility. So it has, it has actually performed the way I thought it would perform. And um, it's just continued to be an interesting strategy to run. Um, so Luis, hold on. Let, me, uh, let, me, let me stop you there real quick because we'll, we'll get into that in a second. So when you had this idea for the strategy, but you're still working at this quantum metal fund. So what inspired you then to be like, all right, I'm good. I think I feel ready. I feel that I can, I, I will, I can do this. You know, what was that impetus then that said, all right, you know, great work in here. I want to go start my own shop. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is personal. A lot of it is just that, um, you know, there's something a little bit different about starting your own firm and, you know, just kind of being fully in charge of uh, the decision-making process. Part of it too was just that um, I thought that I had a unique insight into um, a niche, um, and I just I didn't really see I didn't really see another way I didn't really see other people pursuing the strategy the way that I had thought it through, um, and I thought there was an opportunity not just to launch an interesting strategy, but to basically offer it in um, a low friction way, right? So like through separately managed accounts and without like very onerous terms because merger arbitrage isn't a new strategy. It's just difficult to access. <laughs> no, fair enough. So, so, okay. This, this time. And, and I now, guess I would add yeah. that like the process of, of working at a startup fund and, you know, going through that, that pre-launch process and post-launch process I did learn a lot about that process of running the business, which gave me a little bit more confidence to, to strike out on my own. 
Gotcha. Okay. So now let's get into that investing approach. Um, you know, in you sent me your investor deck prior to, to our chat today and you, you have, two, well, you have three, you have the defensive portfolio strategy, your growth portfolio strategy, and then kind of the combo of both. So I want to dig into uh, first your defensive portfolio strategy, because it sounds like that ties in mostly with, with your, with the merger arbitrage uh, thesis. So let's, let's dig into that. What, what is, what exactly is it? How do you, as you say, get access to some of these merger arbitrage opportunities that maybe other folks that are employing that strategy or want to employ that strategy where there's that, that, uh, that, I guess that barrier to entry. Yeah. So I think that there is limited understanding of the merger arbitrage opportunity and also um, some potential barriers to entry just due to some of the specialized knowledge required to kind of understand the nuances of deals and like um, how to understand how to read and successfully invest in the right deals. Um, hey, hey, Luis, actually, so you know what? This is actually a good question. Maybe we should probably answer that first before we even get into the approach. For those that don't know, <laughs> what is a merger arbitrage opportunity? Let's define that and then we'll get into the investing approach. Yeah, absolutely. So, merger arbitrage is simply like when company A, let's say, buys company B um, for a certain price, let's say $10 a share, but company B trades for $9 a share. Um, if you buy company B at $9 a share and the deal closes and you receive $10 a share, you lock in a, you know, an 11% return, right? And the idea is really that as long as the deal closes, you get paid and you earn your return, regardless of what happens in the economy, regardless of what happens with interest rates. Um, but you know, granted, there are barriers to getting the deal closed, so there is risk, right? So that's why merger arbitrage is generally referred to as risk arbitrage because it's not a true arbitrage; it's not free money. There is still risk involved. Um, where I think a lot of the focus, th there's a lot of different flavors of, of of merger arbitrage, and you know, within my merger arbitrage portfolio, I, I actually pursue like a few different like sub strategies within it. Um, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the idea of, you know, you can go long a target and you can short the acquirer and you can like, you know, play both sides of a spread. It, you know, that, that makes sense in like a, a stock transaction with a merger of equals. Where I've really focused in on initially was all cash deals because I view all cash deals as basically like a zero coupon bond, right? So that's where I can really kind of bank on getting a fixed return that I could model an IRR for as long as I kind of get a sense for, if, if I have confidence around when a deal is going to close, I could model a discrete IRR and I could just make a, I could just make a judgment of, is this, is this return attractive? Is this IRR worth the risk of the deal not closing? Right. And essentially when I construct my portfolio, um, I'm, I'm investing in, uh, typically 20 to, to 40 different merger arbitrage situations or sometimes other special situations with similar characteristics. Um, and I could get into that as well. Like we, we do, we've actually expanded beyond merger arbitrage just to give you some examples in 2020, we got really big into like buying SPACs at discounts to NAV right before SPACs went crazy. And then we liquidated the portfolio when our SPACs were at premium to NAV. Um, We've also participated in buying uh, preferred stock 
below par value when when we think that uh, the market may have mis misunderstood or wrongly sold sold down a preferred share. I think there were a, there were a lot of really interesting preferred share opportunities in in the COVID crash. Um, today, you know, we actually have pivoted back to merger arb because there's a lot of opportunity now because uh, with the new administration, a lot of folks uh, are worried about the regulatory risk. And, you know, I think with rising interest rates, people are also in some cases worried about the financing risk. So that's actually made merger arbitrage attractive again. Um, but yeah, but going back to the idea of portfolio construction, when I'm, when I'm putting together the portfolio, it's essentially a series of um, like 20 to 40 idiosyncratic uh, bets, right? Where the, the risk in any, one, in any one of those positions is fairly isolated, right? Because it's usually, you know, a regulator might not like a particular deal or, um, you know, or shareholders might not think a particular deal is attractive and might not vote in favor of it, right? So that's where, that's where the correlation to other types of asset classes gets really interesting. And what you tend to see, and I've read a lot of academic research on the merger arbitrage premium. Um, historically, the, the merger arbitrage spread has been in the neighborhood of 300 to 600 basis points above treasuries um, over like, you know, the last 40, 50 years. That's actually a really similar range as uh, high yield bonds, right? It's a, it's a similar return spread range as high yield bonds. However, high yield bonds have much higher correlation to what happens in the equity market. And whereas um, the merger R spread really isn't correlated that much to anything, you know, what, what you do find and what people do get worried about is when you have these crash, you know, these financial crisis scenarios and a bunch of deals start falling apart, there is, there is some correlation at that point in the cycle, right? But during the rest of the cycle, there's virtually no correlation. Um, and so it, it's, it's, so I think there's a lot of interesting things about it. And I think it's kind of overlooked as an asset class is it's a long, long short of it. No, hundred percent. I mean, you know, I think some folks probably listen to this and especially for me, I'm about to ask the damn question, but you know, when it comes to looking for and sourcing acquisition targets for potential investment, or just to understand, you know, how, how do you go about finding the ones that you think, all right, this could be an acquisition target. And also, do you have some sort of allocation for when maybe a deal pops up and you can quickly move on it or first part of the question first and then maybe the second part? Yeah. So as I was mentioning before, there's like a lot of different ways to, I guess, invest in this like ecosystem of opportunities. Um, some investors like to speculate pre-deal uh, on, on situations that they think where they think a target could be acquired. Other investors like to focus on deals that are like really hairy, where there's a really big spread, but there's also a really big risk of a deal not closing. Um, I, I'm pretty strictly focused on deals that um, have already been announced or are very, are, are highly likely to be announced. So there is some kind of process going, ongoing. Um, and I'm mostly focused on all cash deals, but I do, dabble in some uh, stock and cash deals where, when I think the, the risk return is uh, you know, adequately compensated. 
And there are some other flavors. Like I do like to speculate on situations where, where that I like to refer to as like limited downside, but potential upside. So like a go shot process or a situation where like, there's a lot of contingent consideration, like a, a CVR, but maybe, um, so I'll just give you an example, right? Um, I was just going to go there. It's example yeah. time. Let's go. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just give you an, and I won't use, I won't necessarily name specific companies here just for simplicity, but theoretically, um, like there's a company that, that it's been announced. They're going to, they're going to be acquired by company a, um, and the market is basically, and, and if you read like the, um, if you go through like the terms of the merger, they've agreed to let the target go through what's called a go shot process, right? Where, um, and what a go shot process means is, yeah, sure. The, the company has a, a definitive agreement to be acquired by the company that just agreed to acquire them. But there's this optionality that they could go out and they, they have permission for a limited amount of time to go out and seek other offers, right? So they typically hire a third party investment bank and they'll go around and basically, and this is especially the case when like there hasn't been a very robust merger process uh, and a robust sale process heading into a deal. So if, if a deal happened really quickly and like the board says, oh, okay, like in order for us to like feel that we've adequately done our job as the board, we need to make sure that we've carried out a fair process. Um, and when these situations happen, um, it, it could be interesting to like study the target a little bit and to really think through, okay, how likely or how um, attractive is the current deal and how likely is it that a higher bid could emerge, right? And, you know, this is where like having some, having spent some time in like merger arb land, you tend to know like which type of assets are, are maybe hot and which type of companies have been the subject of like target speculation in the past. And if a deal didn't go, if a company didn't get acquired by the company that people thought it was gonna get acquired by, all of a sudden, you know, there could be speculation that, okay, maybe this other company that everyone always thought was a, a clear strategic fit could actually come in and make a higher bid, right? So I refer to that as like a limited downside, but, but potential interesting upside because oftentimes, um, these deals, I mean, the market is somewhat efficient. You don't get a very attractive um, merger arb spread. You might only get like a 1% spread or like a half a percent spread. But, you know, if you buy into that deal below the price, the, below the initial offer price, you know, obviously the worst case scenario is the deal falls through to begin with. But the more likely, the most, the more likely downside scenario is you don't lose money you basically get, you just basically have a lower return, but it does open up the possibility to having, you know, a potential 10, 15, sometimes 50 to hundred percent upside opportunity in, in the case of a bidding war. And it's happened a few times and we've been lucky enough to participate in, in some of them. Um, and that's just like another, and, and, and by the way, that's just another example of something that's just completely uncorrelated to anything that happens in the day-to-day um, happenings of like the stock market, right? Um, so that's why I really find this asset class to be um, very interesting and attractive because there's a lot of idiosyncratic and definable risk that you can take. And, you know, the upside is actually fairly reasonable if uh, you pick your spots, right? Like 
if you can consider if, if you can consistently generate a double digit return even you know without using leverage um i would argue that you could match or you could get close to stock market returns with significantly less risk over time got it so i'd love to hear you know if if, if you'd be willing i'd love to hear an, an anecdote or a story of a you know, you deploying this strategy at that, you know, whether it worked out well or not, but would love to hear a, a story that, that maybe you learned the most from, or you had a, it was just a fun, interesting, you know, reason why you love this strategy. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a, in a minute, but I also invest in uh, on the growth equity side and compounders and, you know, the, the work we do on the compounder side tends to be a lot more uh, memorable because the companies and the stories that we learn about are more interesting. Whereas like we invest in like, we've in the three years that I started running this strategy, we've done hundreds of, of merger arb deals. And um, yeah, like they all kind of sound like the same after a while, right? It's like, you know, this spread was, was decent this, this situation didn't work out because shareholders voted against it. Um, this situation was interesting because we got a surprise higher bid or, you know, China came in and blocked the deal. Like, I guess like the war stories I have, because it's what, what, it, what merger arb ends up looking a lot more like is it ends up looking a, mo- a lot more like bond investing where you tend to learn what to avoid. <laughs> and that's, that's how you, do better is you avoid it's like what Howard Marks refers to in, in a negative art, right? Like um, you you tend to know that okay, a semiconductor deal that requires China approval that um, may be involved in like national defense is probably not a high probably has a lower probability of of getting all the approvals it needs, right? Or um, you know, like one 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 situation I'll tell you about is like. Um, in the past, I, I used to invest in some utility, utility M&A situations. And, you know, I learned after investing in one or two of these utility M&A situations that there's so many like local and state approvals that could, that can happen that the process um, usually drags on way longer than you think. And it requires a lot more um, monitoring from the portfolio manager to follow you know, the regulatory approval state by state, where it's just like, okay, unless the, unless the, unless the spread is like, you know, particularly appealing, I tend to avoid stuff like that. Right. Um, and I've, you know, one time I invested in, in, in a company that was listed on NASDAQ, but it was domiciled in Israel. And, um, when the deal closed, I, uh, I, I had to do a whole bunch of paperwork to, to avoid paying like a really, a really large Israeli excise tax or withholding tax. And yeah, there's that you, you, you learn about these things later. It's like, Oh, okay. Maybe that's why people didn't want to buy this deal because <laughs> there's a whole bunch of paperwork on the back end. And it's like, look, okay, we made our money, the deal closed, but um, you know, we had to jump through a few more hoops <laughs> for this one. So I tend to, as, as I've like gotten in, involved in more situations, you tend to learn what not what to avoid and what you know what's a, a greater hassle, and um, you know my my strategy really with the defensive portfolio is, is rule number one: don't lose money. Rule number two: try to generate an attractive return. 
you know, when, when investors come to me and they say, Hey, you know, I want to like make a lot of money. Um, and you know, I'm okay taking risk. I don't tell them to invest in my defensive portfolio. I tell them, okay, like I have a growth portfolio where we take more risk and we try to earn higher returns. The defensive portfolio is really designed to be more like a high yield bond product that's just uncorrelated to other products, right? We're really just trying to do like a high single digit, uh, low double digit net return per year and uh, you know, generate a more consistent return. <laughs> Very good. All right. So th- I, I think I think we probably closed the book there on, on the defensive strategy, um, you know, but I, we were talking offline when we were talking about your other strategy, the growth portfolio one. And you had a pretty funny uh, story about, you know, having started it when you did and uh, and, and and continuing on with it uh, since then. So you want to you want to kind of give a little background there and we'll go. We'll get yeah. Into so, you know, it's, it's actually kind of interesting, like. I started the defensive strategy because I thought it was a differentiated and unique strategy that I think was appealing to a certain type of investor. And one of the things I realized when I started raising money for it was, yeah, it does appeal to a certain type of investor, but it doesn't appeal to every investor. And, you know, you do have some investors who, um, you know, want to want to take on more risk and are really more focused on return maximization. And the other thing I, I always thought about, even from day one with the defensive strategy, is uh, one of the things that the defensive strategy does really well is protect our capital during a downturn, right? And I always thought, like, okay, but when we do get a downturn and there is like a really good drawdown in the stock market, that might actually be the time to redeploy the capital in the defensive. To something else to take advantage of that opportunity. And I wanted to have like a vehicle to, to basically have to, I wanted to have an, a, a vehicle to take advantage of like a correction in the stock market. Right. So that's initially what led me to starting the growth strategy. And, you know, in addition to that, I would say that I've been very fascinated with growth and compounder type investing um, ever since I was in college. Um, you know, I, I think bef- well before I started LVS, I've I published compounder ideas on like websites like Sum Zero or Value Investors Club, and you know, I think there's probably a presentation you could find that I put together for the Sone Idea Conference a few years ago. Um, it's always been something that I've I found fascinating and, and an interesting way to invest, but it's also something that a lot of other people pursue. So it's not as differentiated as the defensive, but um, I effectively, uh, two years into LVS, I, I decided that I, I had enough, I was good enough at managing the defensive. I had gotten that down to a process to where I felt comfortable launching a second strategy on top of that, which was the growth. And I worked on putting together the portfolio, the, the day one portfolio for the growth strategy for, you know, about a year leading up to that. And what the growth strategy is, it's a 15 to 20 name best ideas portfolio, And really like, if the idea of my defensive strategy is like, we wanna earn a decent return and we don't wanna lose money, the growth is like the exact inverse of that is, we wanna just make as much money as possible and we're we're gonna take risk, we're gonna go anywhere. We're open to anything, right? So that that mentality has taken us to US microcaps, it's taken us to foreign microcaps. It's given us some like interesting sector concentration in like the areas of, you know, 
the market that we think are the most interesting long-term. Um, it's an anything goes portfolio. It's, it's literally, let me find the 20 stocks I think we're going to make the most money on over the next five to 10 years. Um, and, you know, day one launch was January 1st, 2020. Um, and, you know, I launched, I, I raised some money for that. And then, um, you know, January was a good month. February was starting to be a good month. And then COVID happened. And we immediately went into uh, like a 30% drawdown with, with the market. And I was beating myself up. I was like, oh my God, did I just like launch, you know, a high beta strategy at like effectively the worst time to launch a high beta strategy. But, um, you know, but it ended up being the, the last, you know, two years have ended up being a pretty good time to be a growth investor. And we tend to invest in like higher quality names, the, the type of companies that actually performed well during 2020. So we, we own a lot of software companies. We own a lot of internet platforms. We own a lot of like capital like compounders that are, you know, even like real world physical asset capital like compounders. And um, yeah, like that, that 30% drawdown quickly turned into um, better performance. And, but it, it was a really interesting year to launch a growth strategy. Um, what, what actually interesting aspect to running both a defensive strategy and the growth strategy is I was actually um, alerted pretty early that the COVID crash was coming due to activity I saw in the defensive portfolio. Um, so because a lot of the deals that I invested on the merger arb side are financed with high yield debt, um, I pay really close attention to what goes on in the high yield debt financing market. And in early to mid-February, um, I started to see the signs that some of those deals were, were not going to be financed. And it really led me to asking questions around, okay, like, is something bigger going on here? And um, in late February, um, so heading into the, heading in like the, the day one portfolio of growth, um, we had a couple of names that were travel exposed. We owned Transdime. I think we owned Booking. And um, I actually, ahead of, uh, in that last week of February, I was starting to really get worried about COVID because of what I was seeing on the high yield bond side. And it, it got me alerted to, you know, the, what was underpinning that move. And it actually led me to, to, to trade out some of those names um, ahead of that crash, which actually ended up saving us some money um, in terms of not losing money on some names that were like highly levered or travel exposed in the growth portfolio. So there's an interesting connection there, but, um, but yeah, uh, 2020 was interesting and, um, the environment for growth continues to be interesting. Actually, um, I'm finding a lot of like really in the, in this post COVID, um, environment where value has started to outperform growth and a lot of the COVID beneficiaries have sold off, I'm starting to find a lot of really interesting babies that have been thrown out the bathwater over the last six months. So I'm, I'm actually getting really constructive for how the next couple of years are going to look. I was, here, let's go down that rabbit hole for before we get into maybe some of the case studies that you, that you put into the deck. Um, what are some things that you're seeing? you know, in terms of, you know, when you're looking, looking at a little bit more longer term. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll start with one that's in the case study. Um, like I think naked wine right now is, is really interesting. 
And Naked Wine's a stock that I discovered summer of 2020. Um, someone reached out to me and said, hey, like, have you heard of this company? They, they just did a really interesting business transformation. They used to be uh, a physical wine um, retailer in the UK with like this online distribution point. And they got rid of basically all of uh, the physical assets. They sold, they sold the physical business to, I think, a private equity firm. And then the business just became this online wine selling platform. And I was like, okay, it's really interesting. By the time I found Naked Wine, it had run up a little bit from, you know, what was happening with the lockdowns. But, you know, it still was really clear to me that there was a lot of value left in the stock. Um, I mean, this is a company that when I found it was like uh, a sub 300 million pound market cap trading in the in the backwater of the LSE in the AIM exchange. And, um, you know, actually one of the many arbitrages that I've kind of been uh, obsessed with in the growth portfolio is finding companies that trade uh, that trade outside of the U.S. that if you just relist them to the U.S., they would immediately trade at a higher multiple. And in particular, I really like companies that not only is that the case, but it also happens to be the case that their largest geographic segment is the U.S. So that's Naked Wine, right? Like 50% of their revenue comes from the U.S. Um, they trade in London. They trade for less. They trade for about one times revenue. Where if you look at similar subscription model businesses in the U.S., it trade anywhere from like two to four times revenue. And I mean, similarly, you could see a similar disparity if you look at it on a price to gross profit basis or like a a price to to normalize EBIT basis. But um, you know, I found this company, and you know, when I look when I look for companies on the growth side. Um, I know historically, like value investors, the margin of safety is usually the price you pay. But I guess the way that I learned how to invest and the way I learned how to invest in a way that works for me is I actually like to invert it. I like to, my margin of safety is uh, the quality of the business that I own. And price just happens to be um, what I'm able to get it for. And, you know, I try not to overpay but my margin of safety is really finding a really high quality business that I'd be willing to buy more of at a lower price, right? So I'm very much, and that's all to say that I'm very much qualitatively focused, especially when I'm first learning about a business, right? So, you know, I found this company, someone, someone hinted me that this could be an interesting company and I joined the wine club. Uh, I spent like six months uh, as a subscriber and I love the product and I don't even really like wine that much. And, um, I, you know, I, as I was studying the ecosystem that they're involved in, um, a lot of the, a lot of the pieces aligned, like, you know, even going back several decades, direct to consumer wine has been like a double digit growth industry for decades since Naked One has launched, it's gained market share every single year. Um, one of the things that we saw during COVID was obviously an acceleration of that trend. But not only was there an acceleration in terms of um, the amount of customers they were acquiring, what Naked One does is they have a two-sided marketplace where they own exclusive, um, they, they own the, the winery, basically. They own this exclusive vintages, they own these exclusive vintages of wine, and they have these really great relationships with winemakers. And yeah, they also own the consumer relationship. And you know that's that's where they add value by connecting these two sides. 
And sure, for the consumers, Naked Wine was solving a, a really important problem during the, the shutdown, which was, okay, we can't go to bars and restaurants. I guess we have to, I guess we have to, and we don't, and maybe we don't want to go inside of a liquor store, but I, let, let's order wine online. But they also solved a huge problem for the winemaker, right? Where the winemaker all of a sudden, where the largest end market for selling your wine is selling to restaurants, you know, and selling to those channels where consumers used to consume, you know, that, that all got disrupted during COVID. So what Naked Wine was able to do actually was significantly improve the caliber of its winemakers that it recruited during COVID because all of a sudden, you know, winemakers were um, not in a very good position with the shutdowns and Naked Wine comes by and says, hey, like we can solve your, your business model problem. We can give you guaranteed demand. We can pre-fund your working capital needs. All you got to do is focus on one, which is what you want to do. And, you know, you may even make more money with us because, you know, we have such a large platform, right? So, you know, thinking through, um, I guess, like the positive impacts of, you know, the surplus they're creating on both sides of their, uh, you know, two-sided network, I thought, okay, like, this is really interesting. And, you know, participating with the product as a consumer and just seeing, like, you know, how great the user interface was, how much I really enjoyed learning about the winemakers and, you know, the, the curation process of like the, the platform starting to uh, recommend bottles of wine that you might like just based on your other, your other purchases. I was like, okay, like this is like a really compelling platform. And on top of that, if you look at the structure of the industry, Naked Wine has actually become the largest player in DTC wine. And there's something like three or four X the size of the next largest player. So they're also starting to really benefit from economies of scale. Um, so there's some really interesting sustainable competitive advantages. And yeah, sure, Naked Wand is not, a, is not a company that everyone's heard of, but it's a company that's actually starting to really, it's in the earlier phases of really building out its moat and, you know, really establishing its brand value, right? So that was a lot of what underpinned my initial investment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been, and we still own the stock, you know, full disclosure. Um, it's been a good performing stock. And now what we've seen in this post-COVID in this, in this post-COVID sell-off uh, market um, is the stock has come down a bit. It's come down, I think it's in like a 15 to 20% drawdown. And a lot of it makes sense, right? Because, you know, there's supply chain issues. And if you think about what the business model is, one of, their, one of Naked One's largest frictions in their, in their cost structure is like using the logistics, um, like paying for logistics. And, you know, Q3 and Q4 of 2021, um, you know, Naked One is, is likely getting, uh, we'll, we'll find out really soon when they give us a trading update, but it's very likely getting uh, raked by, logis by logistics costs, which is, you know, caused the stock to come down a bit. And, you know, people are also worried about um, what's going to happen when people normalize after COVID or people going to start going back to restaurants and turn off the service. Um, but, you know, for me, when I look at that, and if, and if I see the stock come back down materially on what I would argue to be, you know, shorter term uh, worries, like that's when I start to get excited about, you know, reloading, you know, buying more stock, getting loaded up for the long term. Because if I just look at what's, you know, the arc of what's happened over the last 10 to 20 years in DTC wine, and, it, you know, and I think the future probably looks like a continuation of that trend, you know, I... I get really excited about where Naked Wine is going to be in, in five to 10 years if it can continue executing the way it has.
Very good. Okay, so that that was a very clear example of the of your of your growth strategy and and looking for these compounders. I mean, is there any nuance would you say to that strategy when especially in these post COVID times? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit here with you know you're seeing a very short term issue that that is for mainly the reason why the stock maybe took a little bit of a hit, but. I mean, is there any is there anything else that in terms of what we're seeing right now from a macro perspective that is causing you to say, okay, there that's why there are still more interesting opportunities out there or more reasons to maybe reload in some names that you like? Yeah, I mean, look, I I try to react to macro and I try not to predict macro. I try to understand what's happening in real time so I can get a sense of like, what does this mean for you know, business owners and people who are making business decisions today. Um, it's, it's really clear that, um, you know, there, there's, it's, it's hard to really generalize, but I would say that there's a lot of companies that I would argue fit the mold of being a, like a, a high quality, uh, you know, whether it's a tech enabled platform or, you know, just a company that really benefited from COVID a lot of these companies were pushed up to really high valuations, you know, circa January, February of 2021. And we're seeing like, you know, 50, 60% drawdowns in some of these names. And it gets to a point where you, where you have to wonder, okay, maybe I missed it. Maybe I, I missed the initial move, but at what point does the valuation start to get attractive again? If I still think that, you know, the longer term outlook is positive, right? And, you know, certainly there's, there's, there's a lot of push and pull be, between like, okay, like what constitute, what, what aspects of COVID was like a temporary de, uh, demand driver and what aspects of it were an accelerant, right? I think the video game um, ecosystem is another really good example of, of, of that phenomenon where like, yeah, sure. When you're stuck at home, you play more video games and you probably spend a lot more money on video games. And when you, go outside again, you know, when you stop locking yourself up at home, you're probably going to play less video games and spend less on video games. But what a lot of those habits that you developed during COVID, they don't, they don't die easily. And, and look, I, it's happened to me, like personally, right? Like I started to play some video games over the pandemic, having not played for like 10 plus years. And now I, I still find myself playing some games from time to time. Um, and so like, you know, that idea of something becoming accelerant and now there's a higher plateau from which you can grow from, um, it's really hard to judge. Um, so, and I'm trying to think of, uh, I'm trying to think of another, another good example, but, you know, I, I think you, I, I'm seeing similar patterns, you know, whether it's online gambling or whether it's playing video games or whether it's ordering things DTC online, um, people are, are becoming habituated to new ways of doing things. And some of those people will go back to the old way of doing things. But some of those people have realized, oh, actually, you know, um, this new way of doing things is actually really convenient. And maybe I even save money or I have a better user experience or, you know, I, I get more utility out of it for whatever reason. I'm going to keep doing it even, even when we go back to the old way of doing things, right? Mm. Right. So I actually want to do a quick pivot back to, you know, your, the defensive strategy. 
And, you know, you said you looked at a few indicators that actually told you, oh, wait, this COVID thing might actually be very real, you know, and it gave you a signal into, you know, some of the names that you had in your, in the, in the growth strategy. But I mean, look, the talking heads on, on the mainstream media networks are, you know, everyone's kind of thinking like, all right, hey, there might, you know, everyone's kind of looking over their shoulder for, you know, potential, you know, drawdown, you know, potential recession. I mean, in some of the things that you look at, um, are, are, I mean, I know I sound like one of those talking heads now asking you this question, but I mean, why not? Let's go there. I mean, is there anything that you're seeing that that signals anything like that to you and, and why the things are kind of shifting more to value versus growth? Oh, um, you mean like current indicators? Yeah, current um, indicators. So yeah. Look, I'll, I'll tell you like the indicators I saw, you know, March, February of March, 2020. Um, I mean, as, as a starting point, um, the merger R spreads themselves were good indicated, were good proxies for what was happening in the bond market, right? The, the deals that were reliant on high yield bond financing were selling off. And I was trying to figure out if it, what it meant and if it was a good buying opportunity or if it signaling something deeper. Um, you know, the real, the real insight came when I went uh, a layer deeper and I looked at um, the high yield, the spread in the high yield bond market. Um, so I think if you look, you could look this up, but it's publicly available on Fred. And, you know, there's typically, there's a normal range for like the spreads that you would expect high yield bonds to, to be over treasuries. But then when the spreads blow out, right? So I think a normal range is somewhere in like a, like what I said earlier, like a, a 300 to 600 basis point range. But when the spreads blow out, like let's say, Ten a uh, thousand basis points or greater, um, that usually signals like full on panic, right? And one of the things I was doing, um, you know, in February of 2020 was every day I was looking at the I was looking at the high yield bond spread, and I was seeing it wi widen and widen and widen, and then I was hearing of okay, Corona is spreading to this country and that country, and now it's in Europe, and I was like, oh, okay, um, the bond market's really worried about this. You know, even if COVID doesn't end up being, um, even if COVID doesn't end up being like this, you know, 1913 uh, pandemic or 1917 pandemic, um, it clearly is going to impact the economy, whether it's people just correcting their own behavior. Um, and look, and you could also, there's also things you could look at with like the, the VIX index and, you know, something that a VIX trader tuned me to was like looking at the spread between the short-term VIX futures and the longer-term VIX futures, right? So there's all the all these types of like spreads that are like really sensitive to uh, to like economic happenings, right? Um, and you know, I, I'll be honest with you, like when I look at those indicators, and I, I do look at those indicators whenever we have um, sell-offs. You know, we we've had a few like like mini corrections um, in the past year. You know, post the post the 2020, um, you know, bear market. And those, those indicators have all been fairly healthy, like ever since. Um, so I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing that. Um, and you know what, like you, you see, there's a lot of noisy data, right? Like with, um, inflation right now is one that people are particularly paying attention to. And there's all sorts of different ways to slice and dice that data. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and, and 
give you a strong argument either way. But, you know, it's, it's just worth watching what happens with these indicators that, that people are focused on and just really deciding, okay, like, is this a short-term issue? Is this a long-term issue? If it is a long-term issue, what does this mean for my companies? You know, I would argue for a company like Naked Wine, if, you know, logistics prices and energy costs go up, like, they're going to be able to pass off at least some of that to their, their customer. You know, there is some pricing power there, right? Whereas, let's just say um, a utility company, like a straight up, you know, energy producer, um, they're not able to pass on inflation as quickly, right? Because they're regulated. They, they, have, to, they have to get approval to um, increase their rates and they're going to eat the rising costs immediately and they're going to benefit from price increases later, right? So there's certain business models that are just a little bit more resilient to different environments. So I just, you know, I try to figure out what, what, what the risks seem to be. And I just try to make sure that, you know, in, if these risks get more acute, that it's not going to necessarily be a situation that spirals out of control for the companies we own. So, you know, very specifically in March, 2020, you know, I sold Transdime because A, it's travel related, but really I was more worried about the, the debt load that they had, right? They were highly levered and they were, you know, exposed to the, they just did like a levered recap right before, uh, right before the, the March meltdown. And I was like, okay. And they did a levered recap. And I think they did a pretty big acquisition the year before. So I was like, okay, like this balance sheet is not a balance sheet that people are going to want to own heading into this, um, all things being equal. And then on top of that, you know, the fundamentals of their business could be impaired at least in the, in the next one to two years. So, um, that, that's kind of how I looked at that, right? Whereas, you know, I look at Naked Wine and it's like, okay, one aspect of their business is under pressure. It's highly debatable how, how you know, I, I would argue that the acute part of, of that, of that uh, supply chain issue is already passed. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've been monitoring with Naked Wine is, you know, social media posts. And, you know, you could actually see um, people have, complained like, oh, my naked wine is, is delayed or my naked wine came in like a crappy box and, you know, the packaging was, was messed up or like, you could actually see in the complaints, like, okay, like this has actually become an issue. And then it's, you know, then you have to really think about that. Is this something that, is it something that they can fix? Right. Or is this something that, um, is something that to really worry about. And I certainly think about those things and I'm not saying that, I would be buying the stock at the current price, but I'm saying that um, when these short-term issues come to a head and people really do give you that buying opportunity, um, be prepared for it. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm glad, listen, I'm glad we brought up, we, we talked about Naked Wines a little bit just because it's been such a cult name <laughs> discussed on Fintwit. So that was, that, 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 I haven't talked about it with anybody yet. So I'm glad we brought it up. Um, so I have a number of other questions for you, but I, we're, I'm, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting close here, you know, uh, and, and I definitely, you're going to be coming back on to talk about a whole host of other topics, but, you know, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to close it out with the, with a couple of questions that I, I ask all of our guests here. It's my favorite question to ask, you know, what, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most thus far in your career? Yeah. Okay. I just got a flashback. 
<laughs> um, so, you know, look, in a lot of ways, I'm a self-taught investor, um, you know, where I really learned how to invest. And I think I've mentioned this before is when I was an investment banking analyst, I learned about Value Investors Club uh, when I was like a first year analyst and between and for like three or four years, I, I probably read like 90% of everything that was posted on there. Right. I read every single pitch. And in some cases, I invested in some of them. Um, you know, I started following I, I, I learned about Twitter and I started following people like, you know, John Huber and reading his blog and like some of these other people who like write really thoughtful things about investing. And um, so that was really and then on top of that, like I've read all the, you know, reading all of like the classic books that that, you know, people who come on podcasts like this recommend. Um, so that's like a lot of how I got my initial education. And then in addition to that, just like actually putting to practice some of that, right? And, you know, I'm such a nerd, right? That when I was an investment banking analyst on top of working, you know, the ridiculous hours, when I had downtime, I would research my own stocks and I'd put together like my own presentations and like pitch them to like pitch my stock ideas to like my my managing directors and my VPs and my associates and say, hey, like, what do you think? Is this a good idea? <laughs> and, you know, usually the first comment is, you know, Luis, if you put this much effort into your into your actual job, you'd be way better. <laughs> but then but then I'd usually get some other constructive comments. Right. Um, one particular situation that was actually really formative was. I was investing and I found a micro cap. I think I've read a pitch on Vic, which, you know, can be dangerous when you're not as, as skilled of an investor because, <laughs> you know, reading other people's uh, pitches can be really um, influential and it could create all sorts of bias into how you think about, you know, the idea heading into it, you know, the framing could be different. So I read a pitch. It was on a company called Arc Document Solutions, which I think is still a public company. Um, still, I think it's probably still a micro cap. Um, and, the idea was, this is a company that was like the leading provider of architectural blueprint documents. And they were like a printing company. You know, when architects needed to print their documents for a construction project, they would, you know, eight out of 10 times, you know, use ARC, right? And ARC had these, you know, their moat was that they had these, uh, and they probably still do, I haven't followed the company in years, but they had these printing sites basically in all of the major MSAs and, um, and they're just really well known. They were just a go-to printer for these documents. These documents are technical documents. You need a certain type of printer. Um, there's regulatory, in, in many cases, there's regulatory requirements that require you to print these documents. And I was like, okay, like this is a cash cow business, right? Um, and then they had this new business that they were um, investing in, which was like a digital document business. And, you know, they were moving, they were trying to basically create this like cloud-based uh, version of their physical business. And I was like, okay, this is actually really compelling and the stock's cheap. It had like, I don't know, maybe like a 15% FCS yield. It had a founder who had like 20% of the stock, um, you know, check, 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 and moat, like it's a small cap, nobody's heard of it. Like I was like, okay, like this is, this is actually like really compelling. Like this is, I got really excited. And one of the things I did, um, because I was really trying to put into practice all the things I was reading about, in these books is um, I, I started, I called up a bunch of like architects um, in like different, you know, different cities and like, 
just ask them, hey, like, have you heard of ARC document solutions? Do you use them? How, what do you think about them? And like pretty much everyone that all the architects that I spoke to said, oh yeah, like I've, I've heard of ARC, I've used ARC, yeah, like familiar with them. And I asked them, oh, like, would you be like interested in like their digital solutions? And some people were like, oh, I, I didn't know they did that. Or I guess I'd be interested in hearing the pitch. And I was like, okay, like I interpreted it all as like really positive, right? What ended up happening, at least in the time period that I was invested in, and I don't know what the company's doing now, but that physical document business really was more of a melting ice cube for various reasons, right? Just the idea of printing out documents um, is just steadily, it's just steadily in decline, right? And, you know, a lot of those regulatory requirements required physical documents, they were erased and they were, you know, and the, the new regulations um, in, some, in some areas, some places still have physical document printing requirements, but in a lot of places um, they said, okay, you know, digital is fine. In a lot of cases, digital is better because there's, we could access it or do more with the files. And that digital business that ARC was trying to build never really materialized. And, you know, I, I, I learned a really early lesson about two or three different things there. First is I learned to be a lot more skeptical of like when other people pitch me ideas and the, the importance of really doing your own work and like really uh, trying to think through things, like think through the downs, all of like the negative, the, the downside cases and what could go wrong. You know, the second thing is I, I became really uh, weary of, uh, you know, value traps, right? And um, actually I went on to short a lot of value traps successfully after that uh, because I just realized that when a business, when, when a business is primarily staked in something that is in decline and they're trying to, and they're trying to pivot to something that's new, it's just a, it's a really, really difficult transition. And most of the time it fails. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of that. And then the third thing that was really important in learning was, you know, also just caution on doing proprietary calls, right? Like you have to have a really high sample size. You have to ask the right questions. You have to, you know, just asking, you know, just having like surface level calls with people and taking that. And there are also probably like leading questions that I was asking and, you know, um, I probably, you know, the, the more appropriate question to ask is not, have you heard of ARC? Have you used them? Is how much, how much are you printing today versus a year ago? Right. <laughs> or uh, what, where, like you're, you're currently printing out documents. Do you think you'll still be printing out documents next year? Like those are probably better questions, right? <laughs> or, or another thing too is uh, are you paying, like, are you, are you able to negotiate lower prices on the documents you're printing? Right. Like, there's, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of questions like that. Right. And, you know, the, the last thing too, is like, did ARC, did ARC really have a moat? Right. I don't know. Like I thought it maybe had a moat because it, it was the winner in a niche, but as it turns out, there's all sorts of other, you know, local printers too. Um, so, you know, it, I really, it really got me thinking about what, what does it mean to be a high quality business and what does it mean to be a value trap? And there's some lessons that there's some, there's some mistakes that I've made, again, over, you know, I've, I've made some of those same mistakes again and again, but it's, it's been really humbling every time I make those mistakes. <laughs> and, and I think having gone through some of those like war stories, you know, just personally has, has been a really good education and it's been really formative. 
So by the way, thanks. Thank you for that story. That, that was great. And uh, I'm assuming you still don't own any arc right now. No, I took a <laughs> loss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you went to college, right? Or again, <laughs> grad school. Um, so, you know, from that experience and from everything that you told me today, you know, what would you say is the one or maybe the one lesson that maybe you'd want new investors to take away from this? I mean, I'd say the general theme of this pod was talking about merger arbitrage the most. So, and, and we don't really have any lessons kind of around that. So, I mean, what would you say is the number one lesson for those who maybe want to look at merger arbitrage as potential investment vehicle? Yeah, I mean, I think just like it's, it's one, just one lesson. I could think of a couple of lessons. I, I'd say like the theme of like my career trajectory thus far has been like, I've had a very non-traditional route to getting to where I'm at. And, um, and I think the strategies that I found myself in um, are because of these are the strategies that like I'm personally interested in and I, I personally have the right skill set to, you know, whether it was because I was in something related to merger arc, so I got a special insight into this strategy, you know, that's one aspect of it. But like I'm on the growth side, like I've just personally been interested in it for a long time and I put in the work to, uh, you know, learn how to invest that way. And it's something that I am really passionate about. Um, I'd say like the biggest thing, honestly, is just being really open-minded um, and just be willing to change your mind. Um, so I've, I've been humbled so many times in, in the market. And I, I gave you an example of time pals really humbled. I, I, I probably lost half of my money that I invested in on that situation. Um, and and so, sometimes you lose money and there isn't a really, a really good lesson. You just got unlucky. Like some event just happened, right? But sometimes the, sometimes there is a lesson. Maybe you made a valuation mistake or maybe you misjudged the quality of a business. Maybe you misjudged the, the character of an operator, right? Maybe you didn't ask the right questions when you did a proprietary phone call, right? Um, so just being really open-minded. I think that the nature of the market, it's a complex adaptive system which means that, you know, over time, the things that work aren't, um, aren't static, right? It used to be the case um, that you could just buy cheap stocks. You didn't really have to think as much about business quality um, and you could outperform. And, you know, pe people have played with that data a bit. Like I used to work at a quant fund. I've seen, I've seen the data, like value used to more consistently uh, outperform than it does now. And, you know, I think there's arguments to be made whether or not that's like cyclical or secular, but I, I would just say that like, just being, being, you know, you always have to be learning. I think the techniques are constantly evolving. Um, I've written, I've written a lot about things. I, I've, you know, when I wrote my year end letter for last year, I wrote about the things that I learned, right. And the things that I'm not open to um, when it comes to like valuation, like, I've become a lot more open to thinking about things on an EV to TAM basis and just actually not necessarily putting my hat on an EV to TAM, but I think that's a really interesting data point for certain types of business models. Right. Um, and to think about how, like what, how, how are ways that like, you know, 
the internet changing business models. And now what I'm really thinking about, I, I'd say the theme of what I've really been thinking about the last few months is how, how is like web three going to be different from web two? And like, there's all sorts of interesting things happening in various industries where, you know, you've seen crypto and blockchain um, potentially threaten some old ways of doing things. Like uh, one of the things I was reading about recently was that, uh, you know, Steam, the company that uh, sells video games is, is banning Web3 games because they're not able to collect their take rate if people are transacting in blockchain, right? And it's like, that's such like a, a nuanced secondary effect um, that wouldn't, you wouldn't think of right away when you think about what the implications of like what, what Web3 is. But, you know, it is important to like actually be open-minded and like try to learn about like what the new things are and how that might change your your old uh, your old uh, mental frameworks. Very good. All right. Well, Luis, with that, where can our audience go and follow you on social media as well as get more information on LVS Advisory? Yeah. So my website is lvsadvisory.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Luis V Sanchez seven 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 on Twitter. And yeah, people can email me at Luis at LVSAdvisory.com. Happy to chat with people who found something I said interesting or just, you know, happy to always talk to people. Very cool. Well, Luis, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on soon, either for this or on the roundtable to uh, go over, you know, anything. So uh, again, thank, cool. thank you so yeah. much for joining me. Maybe, maybe we could talk more about plants next time. <laughs> you know what? I think I'm going to have to do a plant episode coming up soon. But again, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really do appreciate it. No, I, I enjoy doing it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.